So this interview or discussion is a little more informal than some of the other ones I've done. This is with Noah Goodman. He's a dear friend of mine. And Noah has his master's degree in social work from Hunter College. And he's a licensed clinical social worker and is a practicing psychotherapist on Long Island. If you'd like to explore the option of therapy with Noah, you can email him at ngtherapy at outlook.com. But the discussion is about mindfulness, mental health, and how it um, relates to psychotherapy. Hope you enjoy. So one of the questions that might be important for setting the stage is how emotions work. I think that really you could either be in two states when you're grappling with your emotions. And one is that you are your emotions. And another one is that you're watching your emotions, you're observing your emotions. So when you are your emotions, you are anger, you are anxiety. It's very easy to not see the forest for the trees. It's very easy to just be in your emotions and not have a full grasp of maybe all the historical context that has led up to you feeling that way. And everything feels very justified and real and rational. And, you know, these emotions feel so right. And sometimes they suck. But through mindfulness, through therapy, through working on yourself and grappling with your emotions, the goal would be to kind of take a third person view with your emotions. And almost like in a video game when you're watching over the character's shoulder and you're running around, a third person view where you can take a step back and look at yourself, whether you want to call it your inner child or your inner object or just your inner core and see what that you is experiencing and really poke around, observe it. Why, why am I feeling this way? What's leading up to it? What's the history that informs these strong emotions and maybe what do I need to do in order to, to help myself feel better about this, to navigate this emotional time and also to remind myself that, you know, these emotions aren't it. This too shall pass and they won't consume me. When you say the word mindfulness, um, in the context of therapy, like there are a lot of different modalities of therapy that people could use. And when I'm practicing as a therapist, I think of when people bring this awareness to their cognitive patterns or their behaviors. And you said seeing the forest for the trees. Like, I guess just in a general sense, it's like this awareness of what's happening within you. Um, that falls under the category of mindfulness for me, but I feel like it's been written for hundreds of years, since Freud and, and before that, like this awareness, but it's been called other things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, what are um, some other things that it might be called? Well, Tara Brock, actually, she calls it your spacesuit self, in that you're floating around in, in space and it's the outside feelings, the shell. So for her, it's on the outside, not the inside. But um, for her, your spacesuit is what is getting angry, getting sad, getting hit by little asteroids. And, you know, it's the person inside the spacesuit that 
is one step removed from those elements because of the spacesuit and can really look at the spacesuit and see what's happening to it. So she calls it my spacesuit self. As far as other um, technical terms, that's a good question. I would have to think about that. I think that um, it comes up. It comes up a lot um, all over the place, but even though you accuse me of, of being a, a jargon kind of guy and throwing out technical terms a lot in, in my therapy and my discussions about therapy, the truth is um, I just pull metaphors out of, you know, the sky to illustrate what I'm feeling or thinking just as often as I use technical terms, I use imagery. Hmm. I often use metaphor as well. When you, um, when you talk about the spacesuit self, I guess, like, what comes to my mind is, like, mindfulness or whatever you'd want to call it, just an awareness of what is happening within us. Detachment? What do you mean? It's another word. Detachment. Um, detaching from the self. Okay. I, uh, what I was going to say is, like, one of the things that I do is I teach mindfulness to mental health professionals and to get the class cleared with New York State to be, to be considered continuing education credit, I have to explain how mindfulness-based stress reduction relates to the mental health field. And I've written, you know, a 10-page document on that so that I can explain to New York State how it is that mindfulness relates to mental health. But to me, the question is silly. It's like, how could it be that you could be doing therapy without mindfulness? I so, go ahead. So, that's one of the reasons I was a little nervous, honestly, about coming on this podcast, is because the question is silly, and I am sure that a lot of what I'm saying might be in that document you, you wrote, and I'm sure that a lot of this has been discussed in your groups and in your podcasts, or at least kind of been understood as people grow in knowledge, you know, no one really sat me down and educated me on the things that I'm verbalizing a lot of them. A lot of them are things I piece together through watching your mindfulness practice grow and, and learning how to do therapy and being in therapy um, and just having mental health be such a large part of my life. These are things I've kind of figured out, but so... I don't necessarily know if a lot of this is revolutionary, if we're kind of just rehashing like the mechanisms in which this stuff works, but people kind of intuitively understand. Well, that's what I think makes it important is that like, yeah, there is maybe this thought that it's intuitively understood, but I, I really feel like there is a large um, group of people or um, there's a large belief system that doesn't know that know it intuitively like New York State is asking me to justify how is it that mindfulness relates to men to mental health and it's like that means that there's a core belief from um, in our society that it's maybe not at that intuitive I think there is a lot of misconception from the outsiders if if you'll permit me to call them that uh, about what what this is um, I, I, it sounds, the people who ask that question, it, I feel like maybe they don't get it or do it. 
um, if I ask my clients if they meditate or, or have they ever tried it, you know, as a coping mechanism or anything, oh no, I'm, I'm not good at, I'm not good at focusing my thoughts. Um, so I think that especially because the introductory meditation, rightfully so, starts with physical sensation and people don't follow up and really pursue the depth of where it can bring you. It's focusing my thoughts. It's the air on my skin. It, it's all the things that like you do in, in your first session as you're learning it, but that's just kind of the, the very first step. And so I think for a lot of people, that's what they envision the entirety of it being. So yeah, if I were to assume that and then try to piece together how it helps in therapy, I wouldn't have an answer. Okay, maybe maybe it calms you down a little bit unless you have problems focusing and then you just get frustrated. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to piece together how it helps if I only have that. But even just that is valid. You know, if it's something that grounds you and calms you down, that's that's fantastic. And again, the goal is to cultivate the skills so you're not good at focusing your thoughts. That's why you should be meditating. It's not about you know, mastering it day one, it's about, great, try it because you suck at it and you'll, you'll suck a little bit less with practice. You know, I'm sort of um, ripping off Terrence McKenna when I use this analogy, but it's almost like, to me, the, the, the telescope is to um, exploring the sky as mindfulness is to mental health inquiry like it is the instrument I, I couldn't see how one could honestly explore themselves internally without first building a mindfulness foundation and like maybe people don't practice the, the mindfulness school that I practice mindfulness based stress reduction which is a certain coined term that follows a certain the curriculum, but like they are finding self-awareness. If you are doing honest self-inquiry and mental health work within yourself, you have developed some level of mindfulness or self-awareness. So I think there are a lot of different ways that we can come to this mindfulness and self-awareness. I fully agree. You know, when someone says they're doing DBT, when someone says they're doing REBT, CBT, they're doing mindfulness. When you're treating someone psychodynamically, you're still doing mindfulness. Like, yeah, each, each discipline has their own features and aspects that, you know, make them unique to each other. But the main point is the mindfulness. If I'm sitting down with a client and they're processing their feelings and maybe why they had such a strong reaction to something, in hindsight, the more they do that, the more they're aware of their emotions, the more they can, you know, speed up that, that time it takes for them to be able to process until they're doing it in real time. And they're able to pull themselves back and say, what am I feeling right now? As opposed to, what did I feel three days ago that I'm bringing to you now in therapy? And when they can do that right now, they can self-soothe, they can navigate the conflict better, they can emotionally regulate that's mindfulness, you know? No one meditated there, but it's mindfulness. It's, it's working with the material and getting proficient with the material, 
material in this case being our emotional worlds. Hmm. That's a really cool way of looking at it. Like, uh, I think of, we were talking before about metaphor, I think of an athlete, a lot of athletes will say the more experience they have in the sport, the sport will slow down and they'll do less. They feel like they can do less and get more uh, done and compete at a higher level by doing less, exerting less. When you were giving that analogy right there, I was thinking of like, my practice as a therapist, sometimes in the, in the earlier years, I would be searching for how do I do this right? You know, like how can I perform in this field, in this um, capacity? And the more experience I get, it's kind of like the, the game is slowing down. And I'm realizing that it is as simple as what you're saying. Like, it's just this awareness. And it's this awareness that I know because I have that practice. And it's, it could be as simple as helping the client see what is happening in them. And that's not that difficult to navigate for me because I have that experience. And it really doesn't have to be that difficult for them. It doesn't have to be so complex. It's just like, well, what's going on? And, and if we look at it in real time, what, it, what are your cognitive re responses? What, how are you behaving to what has happened? And it's really a simple concept. Yeah, and it's the central concept that binds all the therapies together. I mean, there's a, there's a it's not really an official concept. People talk about therapeutic cloudiness, which isn't quite imposter syndrome, but therapeutic cloudiness is like, when you have moments of, what am I doing? How do I do therapy? What do I do here? How is it possible that I'm helping this person's emotions, this person's art, this person's brain? Like, what is going on? Um, and one way to pierce that cloudiness is just to remember, you know, this is the work. Them processing, grappling with their emotions is the work. And then, you know, in, in CBT, you give them worksheets and you give them advice. In psychodynamics, you know, you leverage the healing, the healing qualities of the relationship and corrective emotional experiences. But the work is identifying grappling with emotions. When I run groups in my addiction clinic, I, um, I've, I've had a wheel of emotions. And when we do check-ins, I make them give me emotions. And you know, they're, they're in early recovery, so they absolutely hate it when I do that to them. But uh, <laughs> once in a while, you know, when, when, they're, when they forget to be defiant, they realize that it's, it's helpful when... This is the analogy I give. Um, and I don't know if this is actually rooted in truth. Um, it's one of those, like, white people-isms that we say that we don't really know. But it's said that the Inuit people, the, the, the Native Americans living in Alaska, have like 27 words for snow. No, the number, I don't know, it, it, 27, 13, the point is they have a lot. And on one hand, you, you kind of need a lot when it's so prevalent in your world, but on the other hand, having that vocabulary allows you to distinguish between 27 different types of snow. You know, in New York, we get plenty of snow. We have wet snow, we have dry snow, and um, we have dirty snow, and that's it. Um, we get the same snow. There aren't less types, but because it's not in our consciousness, because it's not part of our vocabulary, we don't differentiate. And it's really important to take that to our emotional worlds. 
because the more we grapple with it, the more we can kind of dissect and tease out what exactly we're feeling and what they're called, the more nuance we have in our emotional worlds. And ultimately, we're better for it. We're better with grappling at, at we're better at grappling with our emotions. We're better at expressing our emotions. We're better at understanding our emotions for having that vocabulary. Also, I think uh, well, a metaphor I use a lot, and um, this might have been one that you even told me about, but probably <laughs> like the lenses, the lens that we're seeing through. I use the image of eyeglasses. Like if somebody is seeing something or or receiving something through the lenses of anger, I give them the image of like imagine you're wearing a pair of glasses that was tinted that were tinted red, and you're seeing the world through those glasses. So in order to identify all these different emotions and our reactions to these emotions, we can start to familiarize ourselves with like, okay, when I'm feeling jealous, and you can use the image of seeing the world through purple lenses and anger through red lenses and joy through yellow lenses, but knowing that that emotion is charging your cognition. It is, um, you're smiling. <laughs> I have a big smile on my face because, um, because I'll take it one step further. Uh, with you. I fully agree. I'm right there with you on that. And um, AA has, has a lot of sayings. One of the wisdoms of 12-step groups is, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And what that means is, if something happens that's kind of a run-of-the-mill thing, and 9 out of 10 people would react to it, you know, maybe they feel sad or annoyed or angry, but they move on with their life. And for that one person, it's completely devastating. That's a case of if it's hysterical, it's historical. That's a case of not just the colored glasses they're wearing as far as what emotion they're feeling, but the colored glasses that they're wearing in terms of how they view their value, their place in the world, how their expectations for the world and how it's going to treat them. Um, we all learn, we learn who we are, we learn our worth, we learn what it takes to gain worthiness and survival and to make our relationships work. We learn that the world is a dangerous place or a safe place. Um, we learn to trust others or not. Our value, all these things we learn at a young age, which, you know, is why Freud blamed the parents for everything. But uh, it's the truth. And those are kind of the glasses that we take with us throughout, throughout our lives. So, for example, if someone was never good enough and they were always rejected, by their parents, that's kind of, that's an existential threat because, you know, when you're a baby, when you're a young child, the rejection of your parents, especially before like all these laws were put in place protecting kids, it means death. We're cavemen and we're rejected by our parents. It's death. Um, so there's an anxiety built in when you're, when you have to be good enough. That anxiety feels like doom. It's, it's called annihilation anxiety. I can't, I can't recall who, who coined that. Um, could it have been Brock? I don't know. But you take that person into their adulthood and they're rejected by someone they want to go on a date with. Well, for nine out of 10 people, oh, okay, that sucks. Guess I'll try, like, I'll keep moving forward and try with someone else. But for that person, it confirms all of their fears and sensitivities about themselves. So that completely emotionally dysregulates them, devastates them, hurts them. They feel unworthy, they feel desperate, sad, all these strong emotions. So I think one step further than the, the glasses with 
that are colored by emotions, the glass is colored by the, the truths that we think we learn about ourselves. That has a huge bearing on, on our emotional worlds. Hmm. I hope that was articulate at all.